0: Are you looking for a word from God today? If so, First Baptist Dallas is glad to present this dynamic message by Dr. Robert Jeffers. Dr. Jeffers is a premier Bible teacher, pastor, and author whose practical applications of God's truth help guide and encourage those who seek to know and follow the Lord Jesus. I know you'll be blessed. And now, the message by Dr. Robert Jeffers. You may not know the name Robert Woodruff, but I guarantee you know the product that his company produces. From 1923 to 1955, Robert Woodruff was the president of the Coca Cola Company. And after America entered the Second World War in 1941, Woodruff sent these marching orders to his employees. He said he wanted to make sure every serviceman, regardless of where they were stationed in the world, could have a bottle of Coca-Cola for only a nickel. No matter how much it cost to produce it, no matter how expensive it was to distribute it, every soldier was to have access to as much Coke as he wanted. At the end of World War II, there were now 64 bottling plants around the world for Coca-Cola, and by the end of the Second World War, 5 billion bottles of Coke had been consumed. As my friend Max Andrews says, Robert Woodruff was more committed to his goal of giving everybody in the world a drink of Coke than most Christians are to the goal of having everybody in the world have a drink of the water of life, eternal life. We don't know our mission. We're not committed to a mission. Instead, most of us can identify with the words of Robert Eldridge, who described much of his life this way. He said, for years, all my daily energy was spent trying to beat the trials in my life and arrange for a little pleasure My weeks were wasted away either striving or indulging. I was a mercenary. A mercenary fights for pay, for his own benefit. His life is wholly devoted to himself. The quality of a true warrior is that he is in service to a purpose greater than himself, that is, to a transcendent cause. Let me ask you, are you a mercenary? Or are you a true warrior for God? Are you tired of striving to find a little pleasure anywhere you can? Are you tired of having a purpose no bigger than yourself? Or are you fixed on the one mandate Christ left us with to go into all the world and share the gospel of Jesus Christ? Today, we're going to look at one man who understood his master whom he was serving and he understood the mandate his master had given him. His name is the Apostle Paul, and we find his story in Ephesians chapter 3. If you have your Bibles, turn to Ephesians 3 as we look at Paul, a man with a mission. Now, remember where we are in our study of Ephesians. In chapter 2, Paul contrasts what our lives were like before we came to Christ with what they are now. And in the section in which he describes what our lives were like before Christ, he makes the point that really Gentiles and Jews are both bad off without Christ, but Gentiles were worse off than even the Jews were. Why is that? Look at Ephesians 2.12. He said, remember that you Ephesian Gentiles, you were at that time separate from Christ, Excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and no God in the world. Think about it. Gentiles who didn't have the revelation the Jews had, they had no Savior, they had no country, they had no promises, they had no hope, and they had no God. That's pretty bad shape to be in. But that's the way all of us who are Gentiles are without Christ. But then notice what he says in verse 13, but now, that's the contrast, but now through Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off, that is Gentiles, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the strife, the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might, might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity. What is all of that saying? He's saying through Christ the dividing wall between Jews and Gentiles has been torn down. We saw that in the design of the temple. It was filled with dividing partitions, separating, first of all, Jews from Jews. You had your priests, and then you had your lay people, and then you had the women. But that was nothing compared to the separation from the Jews and the Gentiles. They weren't even in the temple. They had their own court outside the barricade. Well, the gospel of Jesus Christ breaks down those barriers between believing Jews and believing Gentiles. But everybody in the temple was separated from God himself. There was a veil that separated the Holy of Holies where God dwelt from every other person, whether they be Jew or Gentile. But when Christ died, remember what happened on that Good Friday at 3 p.m.? That veil that separated the Holy of Holies from all the other temple, it was torn down from top to bottom. Let the veil down. Let the praise go up. That's what our choir was singing about. Through Christ, we all have access to God the Father. Now, that is the way we were compared to the way we are. And now we come to chapter 3. Most commentators say the verses we're looking at, verses 1 to 13, are the most difficult verses in the entire New Testament to try to outline. But we're going to try to do it and make sense of it because I think there's an important truth. And maybe if I tell you the truth at the front end, you'll see it as we go through this passage. Here's the truth, the sentence I want you to write down. The secret to Paul's success was that he had an understanding of his master and his mandate. The secret to Paul's success was that he had an understanding of his master And his mandate. Look at verse 1 as we look at Paul the prisoner. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. Now let's stop there. Underline that phrase, for this reason. Anytime you see that in Scripture, you ought to ask yourself, what is he talking about? For what reason? Well, that sends you back into the previous passage. It's what everything he's been writing about. His message was saying that there's no longer a distinction between believing Jews and Gentiles, that we are all one in Christ. He said, for this reason, I ended up in jail. That's where I am right now, a prisoner, for preaching that very truth. Now, there were really two reasons for Paul's imprisonment he gives us in this verse. One is the logical reason. The logical reason. The logical reason he was in prison was because of the message he proclaimed. Now, we find more detail about that message when we turn to Acts chapter 21, and Paul is sharing his testimony. I'm convinced God has a sense of humor. If you ever doubt that God has a sense of humor, look into a mirror sometime. 100% evidence there. But it's also in how God deals with us. And that was true for the apostle Paul. Now think about it. Before he was converted, Paul was Saul of Tarsus. And he described himself as a Hebrew of the Hebrews, a Jew of the Jews, zealous for God. In fact, Saul was so jealous, uh, zealous, and jealous for God that he wanted to stamp out heresy. And when he heard about this new sect called Christianity, he wanted to extinguish it as quickly as possible. Paul wasn't a sadist. He didn't enjoy persecuting people. He thought he was being faithful to God, which is proof. You can be sincere, but sincerely wrong. Paul was sincerely wrong. But anyway, he heard that there were some Christians in Damascus, and so he was on the road to Damascus to try to kill the Christians there when all of a sudden he encountered the Lord Jesus Christ who said, Paul, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And in that moment, Saul of Tarsus became Paul the Apostle. He gave his life to Jesus Christ, but he also gave his life to the ministry God called him to on the Damascus Road. He said, Paul, you're going to take the gospel message to the entire Gentile world. You are going to be the one who witnesses to the Gentiles. And so Paul spent three missionary journeys going to the uttermost parts of the world, sharing the gospel. And every time Paul got into a new city, he always stopped by the synagogue to preach to the Jews. That never worked out for him. And so he went from the synagogue to the Gentiles in that city, like the Gentiles in Ephesus. And uh, while he was on those missionary journeys, he heard that the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem were suffering financially. They didn't have enough food to eat. And so, have you heard the term before, no good deed goes unpunished? Well, that was Paul. He decides to take up an offering and go help the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. When he gets there, the Jews go crazy. They think this is their big chance to kill and silence this new convert Saul of Tarsus. And so they say in Acts 21, 28, men of Israel, come to our aid. Here's the man, Paul, who preaches to all men everywhere against our people and the law and this place, the temple. Now, that was a fair accusation. Paul did preach against them. He wasn't uh, devaluing the law, but he was putting it in its right place. He said the old covenant is no longer relevant. Jesus has established a new covenant, a new plan based not on works, but on grace. That was the new message Paul was preaching. And so, they were infuriated by that. And yes, they sought to kill him for that. But then they also charged him with bringing Greeks into the temple and defiling the holy place. Now, that wasn't true. They trumped up a charge against him saying he had taken Trophimus, uh, one of his companions, into the temple, which he had not done. But they thought this would be what they could use to get rid of Paul. So when the Romans see what's happening, that a riot's about to break out, They seize Paul and hide him in the barracks to protect him until he can stand trial before the Romans. And you know what happens? They take him down to Caesarea. He eventually sets sail for Rome where he spends two years under house arrest awaiting for his trial to take place. Now, Paul's experience of trying to do what God told him to but suffering for it, that ought to drive a stake through this heresy we hear all the time. And that is, if you will just do the right thing and obey God, you'll never have any problems in life. Have you ever heard that before? Don't believe it. One writer said, Jesus promised his followers three things, that they would be absurdly happy, that they would be continually fearless, and that they would constantly be in trouble. Well, that's true for any true follower of Christ. It was true for Paul. He was constantly in trouble. The logical reason, he was a prisoner because he was obedient to God. But there was a theological reason for his imprisonment as well. And it's found in that little phrase, a prisoner of Jesus Christ. He wasn't a prisoner of Rome. He wasn't a prisoner of the Jewish Sanhedrin. He wasn't a victim of other people. He was a prisoner of Jesus Christ. That is, he was in prison because of Jesus. Jesus is the one who had him where he was. You say, well, why in the world would God do that? Why would God put on the bench, so to speak, his most effective messenger. Maybe you're wondering that question as well. Why would God, if he really loves me and cares about me, why would he put me in the situation I'm in? Well, if you turn over to Philippians 1, verses 12 to 14, you'll find Paul's two reasons that God put him into prison. You know, when he was under house arrest, in Rome for 2 years he wrote some important letters. One was Ephesians, one was Philippians, one was Colossians, and one was Philemon. He had time to write these letters that became a part of our New Testament. But notice what he said about his imprisonment to the Philippians, Philippians 1:12. Now I want you to know brethren that my circumstances have turned out for the present for the greater progress of the gospel. That's all pa- Paul cared about the progress, the advancing of the gospel, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and everyone else. Now, the Praetorian Guard was a special group of Roman soldiers who were under direct command of the emperor, and they had special tasks given to them. One of their tasks was to guard Paul for two years. Now, they would change out guards Every eight hours, so that in a day's period of time, Paul was chained to a different Roman guard. Now just think about Paul spending eight hours with a Roman guard. What do you think he talked to Paul about? The weather? Do you think Paul talked about the stock market? You think he talked about the outcome of the latest chariot races? No, I'll guarantee you. He talked to him about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Paul said, many of these guards are coming to faith in Christ. And their influence is spreading even to Caesar's household. That was one reason. Paul said, I'm in prison so that I can share Christ. But not only that, verse 14, and that most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Paul said, not only am I getting to witness, but other Christians seeing how I'm responding to this circumstance are having courage to spread the gospel. And that's all I ultimately care about. The reason I'm here here is to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. And by the way, ladies and gentlemen, that's true of you. Some of you today, you feel like you've been forgotten by God, you've been forsaken, you're in a difficult marriage, you're having difficulty with your children or grandchildren, maybe there's stress at work. Maybe you've lost somebody close to you and you wonder why in the world would God allow this to happen? God knows exactly where you are. He puts you in the place you are for a purpose. Ed Dobson has written some encouraging words about how we are never uh, a surprise to God. God knows where we are. He says, God is never caught off guard by disaster. No matter how suddenly it occurs or how large and terrible its consequences, God never calls a cabinet meeting to discuss how he will respond to tragedy, nor does he sit in heaven pondering what he will do next. There's a great psalm you ought to read and memorize if you feel discouraged about your situation. The first three words are pure gold. You know how the 93rd psalm begins? The... Lord reigns. The psalmist doesn't say there was a day in the past when the Lord reigned. He doesn't say there will be a day coming in the future when the Lord will reign. No, the psalmist said the Lord reigns. The Lord is in control of everything that is happening in the world in general and in your world specifically. The Lord reigns. Paul believed that with all his heart. And that's why he said, I am a prisoner, not of these Romans, not of these Jews. I am a prisoner of Jesus Christ. He had a clear understanding of who his master really is. Do you have that understanding? But not only did he understand his master, he understood his mandate, his command. We see that in Paul the minister beginning with verse 2. Paul understood that he had been given a special message to proclaim. And that message is explained in verses 2 to 6. Paul writes, If indeed you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery. Paul said, I have been chosen to unveil a mystery. Now, this word mystery is key to Ephesians 3. Paul uses it four times in this chapter alone. What is a mystery? It's not what we think of as a mystery in our English language. When we think of mystery, we think of a Agatha Christie whodunit book. Or we think of a riddle, an inscrutable riddle that you try to solve. That's not what the word mystery means. Mousterion in Greek refers to a truth that has previously been hidden but is now made known. Paul said, I have a mystery that hasn't been understood in past ages, but God has told me to reveal. He says, verse 4, by referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations has not been made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to His holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. Paul, get to it, please. Please. I mean, that's what you think when you read all this. Oh, I'm going to tell you a mystery. It's a mystery revealed to me. It's a mystery that hasn't been made known before. It's a great mystery. Tell us what the mystery is. Here it is, verse 6. To be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. He says three things about Gentile believers. First of all, they are fellow heirs with Israel there are no second-class citizens in the kingdom of God. Believing Jews are not superior to believing Gentiles or the other way around. They are fellow heirs with Israel. Not only that, he says they are fellow members of the body. What does he mean, body? He's talking about the church. The church is the new organism God has created for both Jews and Gentiles. And Paul's favorite metaphor for the church is the body of Christ. Jesus is the head. You and I, Jews and Gentile believers alike, are parts of the body. We are Christ representative to the world, the body of Christ. And God means for the body to operate as one, to be unified. We know what happens in our physical body when our body's not unified. If you have one cell in your body that starts attacking another cell, you know, D, what happens. It's called cancer. That's not what is supposed to happen when you have one cell attacking another. It causes cancer and ultimately the death of the body. So it is in the church of Jesus Christ. When you have believers attacking believers, it ends up destroying the body of Christ. He said, you are fellow members of the body. And not only that, thirdly, Jews and Gentiles are fellow partakers of the promise. They both share in the promise. Now, there are some promises we've talked about that are unique to believing Israel and some that are unique to believing Gentiles, but they are all partakers of the promise. What is the promise? It's the ultimate promise. It's the promise that Christ came to fulfill. It's the promise of redemption the reason Jesus died for our sins was to redeem us, Jew and Gentile alike. Remember that re- word redeem, ex agorazo, literally means out of the slave market. When you wanted to purchase a slave, you'd pay the necessary price and you would redeem them. You would buy them out of the slave market to serve you. Well, that's what Christ did. He paid the price with his own blood and redeemed us. He saved us out of the marketplace of sin. Remember in our series, What Every Christian Should Know, we said there are three aspects of our redemption, our salvation. When we trust in Christ as Savior, first of all, we are saved, past tense, from the penalty of sin, We never have to worry that we're going to experience God's punishment. We have been saved from the penalty of sin. But secondly, we are being saved, present tense. We are being saved from the power of sin. Sin no longer has any more power over us than we choose to allow it to have. When we are saved, we're in the process of becoming more and more like Jesus Christ. And third, there's a future aspect. We will be saved from the presence of sin, one day, when we leave these bodies behind to get our brand new bodies, those new bodies will not have a taint of sin to them. We will be saved from the presence of sin forever and ever. And Gentiles and Jews are fellow partakers of that promise. Now, you may say, what's the big deal about Gentiles being saved? Gentiles have always been saved. God said to Abraham, through you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. We have accounts of Gentiles being saved in the Old Testament. Jonah went to speak and preach to Nineveh. That was Gentiles, and some were believers. Uh, Rahab was a harlot. She was a Gentile. She was saved. Ruth was a Moabite, but she was saved. So what's new about Gentiles being saved? Nothing new about that. But how they're saved is what's new. It used to be for a Gentile to be saved, he had to go through the door of Judaism. He had to be proselytized. He had to convert to Judaism and follow the sacrifices and the rituals, and that's how he came to faith in Christ. But no longer do Gentiles have to come through Judaism to be saved. They come to God the same way Jews come to God, and that is through faith in Jesus Christ. And that is a new concept the idea that Jews and Gentiles who are believers are both part of one unified organism called the church. Now, to show you what a big deal that is, we're talking about football today. Just imagine this week, Governor Abbott, a godly man, a friend of our church, Governor Abbott calls a press conference this week, and he says, you know, there's been some strife and division in our state that I want to put an end to today. For too many years, we've been divided over those who are of the University of Texas and those who are of Texas A&M University. And I'm sure I heard a whoop in there somewhere. But for too long, we've been divided into Longhorns and Aggies. And so today, I'm announcing that we're abolishing both schools And instead, we're going to establish a new university called the Lone Star University. And members of this new university will no longer be known as Longhorns or Aggies. They'll be known as Tumbleweeds. Everybody who's a part of this university will be a Lone Star Tumbleweed. How do you think that announcement would go over? Just about as well as Paul's announcement of the mystery. They didn't want to be one. They didn't understand that. They wanted to keep their distinction. Paul said, no, we are one. That was the message explained. And then we see the message proclaimed. How was that message to get out to the world? Notice this. First of all, it was to come by Paul. Who is going to share this mystery? It would come by Paul. Look at verse 7. I was made a minister of this gospel according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of his power. By the way, notice it says, I was made a minister. He didn't choose to be a minister. He was made a minister. Now, I believe God calls certain people to ministry, men and women, to various ministries, vocational ministries. They give their whole life to a particular ministry. And people don't understand that. People who aren't called into ministry don't understand that. Amy and I were riding in an Uber not long ago, and the driver was making small talk. He knew I was a pastor, and he said, what made you choose to be a minister? I guess the pay is pretty good, right? I said, well, sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't, but that's not the reason. And I explained to him how I was called to the ministry. I might as well have been speaking Chinese to him. He had no concept of that at all. No, God calls. And by the way, if I'm speaking to some here today or watching or listening to this message, and you're struggling with whether you're called or not to full-time vocational ministry, don't worry about it. You're probably not. Those who are called understand that they're called. There's an unmistakable call of God to men and women who are called to ministry. But in a very real sense, every Christian has been called to ministry. We may get our paycheck not from a church but from someplace else, but our mission is the same, to proclaim Christ to as many people as possible. Paul said uh, the gospel, this mystery, was preached by Paul to the Gentiles. Look at verse 8. To the Gentiles. This grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. You know, we're to preach the gospel to everybody, but God calls us sometimes to different groups to minister to. Uh, Philippians 2:13 says: God is the one who is at work within you, giving you the power and desire to do his will. One way to know your specific calling is to ask yourself, what do I enjoy doing? What do I feel drawn to? Some people are drawn to minister to children or students or prisoners in a prison or abuse victims. One way to know the unique group that you're to minister is by uh, those that you have a special desire for. He said the gospel came by Paul to the Gentiles and notice thirdly, through the church. Look at verses 9 and 10, so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church. Now, you know today, the church is thought to be a second-class organization, out of date, no longer relevant. There are other Christian organizations that more are more effective, we're told. And yet, that's not what the Bible says. There are a lot of good Christian organizations out there that do wonderful work, but they are all second to the local church. The church is the only organization in the world that was designed by God. It's his idea, the church. Ephesians 5.25 says, Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Now, I know some Part time theologians want to argue with me about that. And they want to say, oh, well, that's talking about the universal church, all Christians everywhere. That's what it's talking about. Not completely. Did you know the word church is found 110 times in the Greek New Testament, Ecclesia. 90 of those times, it's referring not to the universal church, all Christians everywhere, but to the local church. God's primary plan for getting the gospel out is through the local church fulfilling its mission. I love what Tony Evans said about the church. He said, Jesus plan is that there would be a group of people on earth who made up his global church and who reflect the nature of heaven. That way, no matter where people live, if they want to know what's going on in heaven, all they have to do is check out their local church. God's people are to be earthly models of heaven's reality. Francis Schaeffer used to say, the local church is the universal church cut down to size. The gospel is preached through the church. And notice, fourthly, he said, it comes by Paul to the Gentiles through the church for the angels. Now, this is a mind-blowing thought. The primary beneficiary of the gospel of Jesus Christ is not those who receive it here on earth. It's for the benefit of the angels. That's what he's talking about, to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. What does that mean? Why would angels who are already in heaven need to hear the gospel? Remember, God's one purpose is to bring glory to himself. The best explanation I found for this are in the words of the late theologian and pastor James Montgomery Boyce. I want you to listen to this. It's worth the price of the sermon today just for this quote. He said, "'After Satan, Lucifer in heaven, rebelled, "'God could have simply destroyed Satan "'and snuffed out the rebellion before it ever got started. "'Had he done that, "'the angels would have seen God's power and his justice, "'but God chose a completely different plan. "'He said, "'I'm going to create a race called man. "'I know that Satan will seduce many of them "'into following him, and Satan will think he's one.' But while he does that, I will create a new people who will glory in doing what's right, following me even when they suffer for doing so. Satan will say, your people serve you only when you protect them and provide for them. But this new people I'm creating will praise me in spite of their suffering and bring glory to my name. And so, All of us are a part of this great eternal drama. The world is the stage. The angels are the army and audience. But this new people I am creating will simply come on the stage at their assigned time and speak the words that come from hearts that love him. Isn't that a great thought? We're just actors on the stage. Coming on stage at our assigned time to speak the words that were assigned and to glorify God in the process. Paul understood that. He understood he had a role to play, words to utter, and he did so in such a way that gave honor to God. What about you? Do you have a clear understanding of who your master is? Do you realize when you go off to work tomorrow, or go to school, or stay at home. You're not serving that boss, that teacher, that mate. You're serving God. And you realize that wherever you get your paycheck from, that's not the issue. Your real mandate, your real assignment, is to glorify God by reaching as many people as possible with the gospel. Understanding, knowing your master, Understanding your mandate are the keys to living a life of true purpose. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. I realize the majority of you listening to this message here in person or by broadcast, most of you are already Christians, but maybe you've lost focus about what your life is to be about. Maybe today you would say, God, forgive me for forgetting that you're my master, that you had me where I am for a purpose, and today I'm recommitting myself in this place you have put me to glorify your name by using this situation to spread the gospel to as many people as I can. We all need to make that recommitment from time to time. And today, if you're ready to refocus on the master and the mandate, let God know that. He'll show you how you can make that change in your life. But I also realize there are people listening, listening to the message right now who may feel distant from God. There seems to be a separation between you and your God. That's not your imagination. That's reality. God said in Isaiah 59:2, for your sins have become a separation from you and your God. There's only one way to tear down that wall, to pierce that veil, and it's by accepting Christ's forgiveness of your sins, by trusting in Jesus to be your Savior. And if you'd like to do that today, to know that your sins have been forgiven, that you have a relationship with God that will extend past your death throughout eternity... I want to encourage you wherever you are to pray this prayer in your heart as I prayed out loud, knowing that God is listening to you. Would you pray this with me? Dear God, thank you for loving me. I know I have sinned against you and I'm sorry for the sins in my life, but I believe what I've heard today, that you love me so much, you sent your son Jesus to die on the cross for my sins, to take the penalty I deserve for my sins. And right now, I'm trusting in what Jesus did for me, not in my good works, but in what Jesus did for me to save me from my sins. Thank you for forgiving me and help me to live the rest of my life for you. In Jesus' name, amen. On behalf of Dr. Robert Jeffress and everyone at First Baptist Dallas, thank you for joining us today. Our hope and prayer is that the biblical truth of this message will continue to be a blessing to you as you apply it to your life. For more information about First Baptist Dallas, we invite you to visit our website, firstdallas.org. May God bless you richly today.